That's the sound that my nine-year-old daughter Ryan made this last summer as I was in the kitchen preparing lunch on a Saturday afternoon. And she's hauling from me downstairs and I hear her feet trampling upstairs. And I'm curious who died. She runs into the kitchen with this intense look of excitement and said, Mom needs you. And I said, where is mom? She's downstairs. She's downstairs. So I go with Ryan. And certainly it could not be as bad as my nine-year-old daughter is portraying it to be. Could it? As I go downstairs and I round the corner into our TV sitting area, Straight ahead is one of our bedrooms that we had built upon buying our house. We, we, it used to be a woodworking room, and it was cinder blocks and concrete and rebar, and we furred it out and put sheetrock and a nice ceiling and made a, a nice bedroom out of it. And I walked in there, and everything looked fine until I got into the door, and there is Stacy, my bride, with my 15-year-old son staring up at the ceiling to which the once sheetrock had now become a membrane that resembled a water balloon. And I looked and all that I could muster up was, what happened? As though I expected them to give me an answer. This is a guest bedroom that we built for family and friends and other guest speakers that we have periodically throughout the year that we have built and we don't spend a lot of time in there. It just so happened that my son has a cleat collection and he was going to evaluate his inventory And as he walked into this guest bedroom, right above the television on the wall was this membrane with water pouring down. And he noticed. I did the only reasonable thing I could do, and I grabbed a screwdriver to make a small hole in the membrane. Oh, you've you've seen this before. So I made a small hole with a Phillips screwdriver in the drywall and then proceeded to be bathed in sheetrock particles and fiberglass and showered with cheers or jeers from my wife and kid. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Mm. Here I am covered, legitimately covered, head to foot, in water, fiberglass, and sheetrock particles. And my wife says, watch the carpet. (laughs) I don't think the carpet's going anywhere. We began to run throughout the house to find where the water was coming from. If you know anything about water, you know that it will travel uh, with with, with uh, gravity, and it will stop at the lowest peak. 
So we went up and checked the washing machine and we checked the dryer because it was right above and we checked sinks and we checked toilets and we checked outside. We checked everything. And in a moment, my wife said, I wonder if it could be our refrigerator. I thought, there's no way. The water, I checked, the ice was coming out of the ice maker. The water was coming out of the filtered water. I opened it up. All my, all my, my precious meat and dairy products were still there. It looked amazing. There was some produce somewhere. And I looked, I thought, no, honey, this is all fine. Until I turned the flashlight on my phone on and I kneeled down and I looked underneath the puddle of my refrigerator and I pulled it out and we found the problem. Now here's what I want to tell you about this problem. It is a shutoff valve. An 86 cent plastic shutoff valve had sprung a pinhole leak. And when we pulled the refrigerator out from the wall, it applied enough pressure in the middle that we couldn't see any water coming from anywhere. We looked around and we could see the baseboards and we could see, the, I mean, we could see it had been leaking for some time. It wasn't until I began to push the refrigerator back in that my wife, who happened to have a flashlight on in the back, noticed this mist, this small, seemingly small stream of water that when we pushed and took the pressure off of that plastic valve allowed for that pinhole leak to start shooting water. We opened it up. And I praise Jesus for the opportunity to persevere in that moment. I said, Father, this is amazing. I was hoping that I could spend a couple thousand dollars mitigating this. Lord, I wanted an opportunity to work on my patience and you gave it to me. Jesus, you were the best. I spoke in tongues of foreign man. The spirit had descended upon me. I was angry and frustrated and yes. And so my wife said, what do we do? And I shut it off and we went downstairs. And the only thing I could do was call somebody who knew what to do. So I called my friend, Steve Lorenz, who's a general contractor here. And I said, Steve, since you helped me build this bedroom, this is probably your fault. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, did you find the problem? And I said, yeah, I found the, the problem. This is almost 11 o'clock at night at this point. He's on his way back from Homana, where he was with another friend of ours. They went to dinner, the two of them. It's cute. <laughs> As they were coming back, the two of them came to my house and they began to laugh. As they looked and said, Oh, yeah. I said, man, that had to been going for months. He said, no, that could have happened in a couple days. And we went down there and we looked. What he said to do was get a sheetrock knife and cut out your ceiling, tear out all of the fiberglass and turn everything off. Make sure that you identify that that's the problem. Here is my brand new bedroom that now looks like Death Valley. We then had to begin the repairs. I had to treat all the lumber, mitigate any possibility for mold. I had to replace the sheetrock after replacing the fiberglass, after replacing one of the recessed lights that I had used a rotosip to cut the wire on and blow out all the power in the house. 
you need somebody to write a speech for you? I know a guy. You need help in your house? I'll find a guy. It took me weeks to put everything back up, the ceiling. And then we had to spend $700 to have the carpets cleaned, try to salvage the carpet and pull them back so they could air out the television, make sure it works, important things. We finally got the bedroom back together. But it all began with a simple pinhole leak that went unnoticed. It's the pinhole leaks in our lives that go unnoticed that have the most potential for detriment and damage. And the only way, the only way that we can identify these pinhole leaks in our lives is if we rip out what's bad, identify the problem, allow Christ to fix it in us and begin to mitigate as we mature in Christ. What pinhole leak is the Holy Spirit going to bring to your mind this morning that you need to investigate? You see, we didn't open up the ceiling and identify where the problem was immediately. We searched high and low. King David said, search me, O Lord. Search my heart. Test me and try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. It's a process. I didn't go downstairs and see that there was a membrane hanging from my wall and go, oh, that's the refrigerator. It must be the shutoff valve, 86 cents. Let's go check it out. No, no, no. We had to search. We had to do our due diligence to determine where the pinhole prick leak was coming from so that we could fix that hole. Most of us never take the time to rip out the sheetrock in process of identifying the pinhole leaks in our lives. And that's exactly what James is going to talk to us about this morning. These seemingly pinhole leaks that go unnoticed but create death all around us. Grab your Bible. Turn to the book of James, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and allow one of our ushers to gift you a Bible. Take it with you. It's yours to have and to keep. Get a pen or a pencil handy. We are going to be studying and highlighting and circling. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Otherwise, Turn to the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. This message today is entitled, What Happened? What Happened? On the heels of last week's message where we looked at a decision tree and we compared worldly wisdom against godly wisdom, the eight characteristics or attributes of worldly wisdom as opposed to the eight characteristics or attributes of godly wisdom and the the intrinsic effect of worldly wisdom leading to death and godly wisdom leading to righteousness, godly righteousness, we came to the understanding that we need to separate our thinking, our ways from the world and choose the wisdom of the word, the wisdom of God. And the only way that we can identify and understand the wisdom of God is to know God. And the only way to know God is to know his word or to surround ourselves with others who are living out that righteousness that James talks about. On the heels of this We're going to study today James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and we are going to look at a few things. We're going to look at some issues and some outcomes. We're going to look at some practices and some promises, and then we are going to identify, ask, and answer the big so what today. What's it there for? What do I do with it? What now? What next? Father, as we jump into your word, open our ears, ready our hearts, prepare our minds for an encounter with you 
Eliminate all distractions so that we might fix our focus and our attentions on you. As we lean into you, Father, I pray that you would redeem this time for your glory, for your goodness. Father, we're going to have to ask and we're going to have to answer some hard questions today. Some pinhole leaks in our lives. Some things under the surface that are going unnoticed, at least seemingly going unnoticed, but that are wreaking havoc in us, around us, through us. Father, help us to be honest with ourselves. I pray the prayer that King David prayed to you so many years ago, that you would search our hearts, that you would seek out the things that are wicked and broken in us, and that you would lead us to a life everlasting. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be a gift to you this morning, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James writes to Jewish Christians, first generation, first century Jewish Christians who are a part of the persecution, also known as the diaspora. They have been forced out of their communities and everything that that entails, and they have been spread out throughout Asia Minor at the hand of extreme persecution. You can read about the hallmark of that persecution beginning in Acts chapter 8, where Stephen is martyred for his faith and where Saul of Tarsus, who is a leading Pharisee, gets permission in Acts 9 to head to Damascus and he is going to arrest and he is going to kill anyone and everyone who is a follower of the way. He is looking to rid the earth of anyone who had adopted the influence of Jesus. At the hand of this persecution, these early adopters of the faith, also known as followers of the way, are searching for an identity. They're searching in their communities. They are also working to maintain the local expression of worship, which is the church. They have house churches. They have small gatherings in in these synagogues throughout their communities where they come together in worship. And James is writing this letter from Jerusalem where word is getting back to him. Excuse me, word is getting back to him about the struggles, the trials and the temptations of these early adopters of the faith. And he loves them and he knows them. He's lived life with them. He's done ministry with them. He is writing as a shepherd to his sheep, as a pastor to his people. And he writes as an individual that is speaking at their level and speaking their language. He doesn't write over them. He doesn't write to them. He writes with them. He uses the term of endearment over and over again. Dear brothers and sisters saying, I'm one of you, we're in this together. And then he addresses several things, not the least of which, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds at the hands of this persecution because you know that God is working through these persecutions to to bring your faith full circle so that you'll be fully mature, fully raised up on the day that Christ returns for his bride. Take advantage of every opportunity. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about things like wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask Papa God, who's a generous and good and a gracious God. And he's going to give it to you. And he's going to give it to you in abundance. But when you ask, don't be double-minded, tossed and thrown about by the waves of the sea, which we're actually going to see a little bit of today. Because when you ask double-mindedly, it's like you look at yourself in the mirror, you walk away and you forget what you look like. Such a person should never feel or expect to receive that kind of wisdom. And then he goes on to talk about relationships and he goes on to talk about works and our faith and that faith without works is actually no faith at all. And he says in James 2.18, kind of the hallmark of the entire book, listen, you talk about your faith, but I'm going to demonstrate mine. I'm going to demonstrate my love for Jesus and how I live my life. And from there, he talks about arresting the tongue. 
Making sure that everything that comes from our mouth begins in our heart and that we adjust our hearts to align with God so that what we say is a, is a reflection of, of him. And then last week we looked at wisdom. And today, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, and let's study these 10 verses together, church. He asks the question because it's gotten back to him. What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? This seems to me to be an issue of tattletaling. That James is sitting in Jerusalem and he's ministering and he's loving and word gets back to him that the local church is fighting, that there's quarrels, there's literally divisions going on in the church. There's political wars being waged all around them. There's physical wars being waged all around them. The last thing that this world needs is a church at war with one another. The last thing that this world needs is a church that is at war with one another. James finds out that there's this internal fighting, that there's this quarreling going on, and he asks the question, hey, hey, do you understand what's causing the quarrels and the fights among you? And then he asks this question, well, don't, don't these fights and these quarrels come from the evil desires at war within you? Evil desires. So fights and quarrels are the symptoms of a greater problem. When I was called downstairs, the symptom of a greater problem was a membrane that used to be sheetrock. The symptom of a greater problem was water running down from my ceiling. The symptom was that the sheetrock had come down and the the insulation had come down, the fiberglass. And I had to go through all of the symptoms, examine and evaluate all of the symptoms so that I could locate the problem. Because until we locate the problem, we'll never be able to address the problem. And if we can never address the problem, we'll never be able to mitigate the effects of the problem in our lives and in the lives of others that God gives us influence over. And he says, these fights and these quarrels that are going on, aren't these a byproduct of evil desires within you? Evil desires. What I know to be true about relationships, marriage relationships in particular, but relationships in general, there are three main causes for quarrels in relationships, and they are all related to the same thing. Those three things have everything to do with unmet expectations. From the unmet expectations, they have everything to do with uncommunicated expectations. And from the uncommunicated expectations, could it be that your expectations are unrealistic expectations? We've got Unmet expectations because of uncommunicated expectations, which are likely the byproduct of unrealistic expectations. And when you have the culmination of the three, it leads to quarrels and fights among us. I find that Stacy and I don't often argue about those things with which we are in conversation and agreement over. It's the things that we haven't discussed that we superimpose on the other that lead to frustration and quarrels and fights and the things that we superimpose are our own selfish desires there are expectations it can happen in the most simple ways on your way to church this morning do we go to church do we not go to church of course we go to church we're from nebraska what's a little snow 24 inch snow drift against the garage i know it's a little snow i was out here this morning 4 30 with russ one of our elders 
We battled for almost 45 minutes about whether we should do church or not do church. And I did the only godly and right thing to do. I called our children's director. I called our elders. And I called uh, Mark, our executive pastor. And I made sure that if I was going to be up, they were too. (laughs) And I said, I have no problem. Mark, I have no problem getting to church because I have a full-size Ford pickup. Four-wheel drive. With a snow and ice mode. I got here no problem. Most of you drive Chevys. The folks who aren't here right now are at home with their Chevys. And I asked Mark, I said, I said, Pastor Mark, what do we do? Do we shut this thing down? Or do we do church? And Mark said, oh, I'm not making the decision. Let him be mad at you. I said, you are a good leader. So good at delegating. And we made the decision. We're going to cancel 8 o'clock service and we are going to do church. But we had to really investigate and talk through what was really going on before we made a decision that was best for everybody. It involved an honest evaluation of the AccuWeather and the radar and consideration of others around us. Just because I drive a Ford that can get anywhere doesn't mean most people do. Somebody said this morning, hey, did you, uh, did you end up using your snowblower to remove the snow from your driveway? And I said, yep, right here. 4.45 this morning, shoveling. Guys, this morning is one of the silliest yet most accurate examples of how we should approach life and relationships. Don't assume. Collect information. Seek to hear before desiring to be heard. Look out not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. Consider what's best. And before all of that, consider what's biblical. Most of the quarrels and fights among us have everything to do with unmet expectations because they're uncommuted expectations and reality is they're probably unrealistic expectations. We need to start opening up the lines of communication. He says, what's going on? Don't these come from your evil desires at war within you? The thing that I love about whenever you see in scripture that it's, there's a war going on is guess what? The battle is still being waged. You haven't conceded. You haven't said, okay, Satan, enemy, all your demons, you can have it. There's a war being waged. Don't be afraid of the war. Be afraid of when you stop fighting or lose the heart to fight. You want what you don't have. Okay, here we go. Here's issues and outcomes. We're going to see three issues and three outcomes. You want what you don't have. Issue. Outcome. You scheme and kill to get it. It's not likely that James is addressing anybody in his congregation that has physically killed anybody. But remember Jesus who says multiple times in the New Testament... Starting with the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, hey, listen, if you have anger in your heart and you cry out at someone, an insult, it's as though you've already killed them. If you commit one sin, you've committed them all. And so what James is likely addressing isn't the physical manifestation of murder, but the emotional and the relational and the verbal He says, you want what you don't have, so you scheme. In other words, 
you look for every opportunity to take advantage of others to get what you want. You're going to walk on people. You're going to walk over people to accomplish your selfish desires. You want what you don't have so That's the issue. The outcome? You wage war and you, you, you kill them. You don't, you, you don't have it, so you scheme and kill. Here's the other issue. You're jealous. You're jealous of what others have. In other words, you care more about what they have than, than what you don't, don't have. You, you're so focused and fixated on what they have, why it's better, why you deserve it, how you've worked harder to get it, how they're not as deserving. You're so jealous of what they have that you neglect what you do have. This is, a, this is almost always true when it comes to extramarital affairs. You're so focused on what everybody else has that you neglect what you have been blessed with. This is almost true with people who are buried in credit card debt. You're so focused on what everybody else has, the boat, the car, the house, the clothes, the fine dining, the vacations, that you will, you will do whatever it takes, putting yourself at risk to accomplish those things instead of appreciating what God has blessed you with. This isn't unique to us. James is addressing this with the church. He says, you're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. That's the issue. So what's the outcome? You fight and wage war to take it from them. David, 2 Samuel 11. God has blessed David, a man after God's very own heart, with everything this side of heaven. He has got wives, he has got concubines, he has got kingdoms, he's got it all. And yet he's bored. I find that it's people who have the most that are the most entitled often. And they get bored with what they have. David is walking out on the rooftop of his palace and he sees this beautiful woman Bathsheba bathing. And instead of praising God for the blessings in his life, he takes issue with the fact that somebody else has her and he doesn't. So he sends for her. They go and get her. While in the meantime, her husband is off fighting his war, King David's war, for his kingdom. He brings Bathsheba to him. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. And then he begins to scheme and he wages war and he eventually kills him he brings him home he lies he convinces him to try to sleep with his wife he won't do it and so then from there he says what am I going to do it becomes a snowball effect and he says look I want you to take him and I want you to put him on the front line where the fighting is the most fierce and I want you to back away and let him die so that he could take what didn't belong to him rather than treasuring what God has given us we will sell ourselves short in exhaustion of pursuit of what others have. We'll wage war and we'll do whatever it takes to take it from them. We'll take it from them. Here's the third issue. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't even ask God for it. You don't counsel with God. You don't consider what God has to say. The issue when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. There's the, there's the outcome. You want what will give you pleasure alone. I'm going to ask you a question this morning to consider, friends. Very simple. Why do you want the things that you want? 
Why? What purpose? Whose benefit? Whose gain? And the things that you want, do they accurately align with the heart of God? There's three issues and three outcomes. The first issue is you want, but you don't have it. The outcome is you'll scheme and kill to get it. The second issue is you're jealous because you can't have it. The outcome is you fight and wage war. The third issue is that you don't have what you need because you don't ask God for it and you have ill motives. And the outcome, the outcome is that you only want what brings you pleasure and you're filled with selfishness. Verse four, I love James. James doesn't sugarcoat his preaching. I can relate to that. Look at verse four. Here's what he says to the people he loves the most. You adulterers. And why does he say it to the people he loves the most? Because he loves them. He's calling them out on the things that they need to be called out on, the things that are causing God grief, the things that are causing division amongst them. When he uses this term, you adulterers, he is literally talking about a man involved in an extramarital affair. This word adulterer in the original language, the Greek is actually written in a feminine text and it means a woman who gives herself away. A woman who gives herself away. And it's often used with the bride of Christ that is defiling herself. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see the Israelites referred to as the bride of Christ. And God will talk about divorce, divorcing himself from the bride of Christ, or the bride of Christ divorcing herself from him. And he'll say that you are a wicked and adulterous people. In other words, we are in an extramarital affair. Here's what this literally means. When he says, you adulterers, what he is saying is, each one of you is in an extramarital affair with an idol in your life. It may not be sexual. It may not be an extramarital relationship. But whenever you put anything in front of God, that becomes adulterous. And so my question this morning is, that pinhole prick that I was talking about, it's an idol. It's something. It's scheming. It's waging war. It's willing to kill to get what we want. And James calls it out, you adulterers. Because he loves you. Because he wants what's best for you. He says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Friends, in 10 verses, he will use first person plural or singular 32 times. 32 times he is addressing him or them as individuals. He's talking to the collective. He, and yet he talks about them individually. 32 times he mentions that. That should, that should sound the alarms and, and awaken our hearts and our minds to the reality that, that they're being really selfish. He's saying, you guys got to get this. You're being adulterous. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. Why does he say it again? Because it bears repeating. It is worth repeating. It is significant. If you, this is an active choice. This isn't something that happens to us or happens around us. This is something that we involve ourselves with. If you want to be a friend of the world then you make yourself an enemy of God. Why? Because the things of the world are filled with sin and God can have no part in sin. Do you see that? When you actively pursue the things of this world, you are actively pushing away the heart of God. 
So don't play the victim. Don't actively pursue the things of this world and then wonder why God seems so far and distant and aloof in your life. It goes on to say, verse five. Have I mentioned that I love the way he preaches? Listen to this, friends. Verse five. James lays it all out on the line. What do you think? Do you think the scriptures mean what they say? He's asking a rhetorical question as in, do you think that the words of God are just empty? Because if you don't believe the words of God, then the power of God is not present within you. He's saying, do you not take God at his word? Don't take me at my word. He's going to quote scripture three times. He says here, what do you think? Do you think the scriptures, what do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit of God has placed within us is filled with envy? What's he quoting? Exodus chapter 20. Thou shall have no other gods before me. When we want the things of the world, that is a form of idolatry. Idolatry is a form of adultery. And we are placing something or someone in front of the position that resides for God alone in our hearts. He's saying, don't take my word for it. You've known this. From generation to generation, from the beginning, you know this to be true of Scripture. You say you believe the word, but do you believe it when it says that you should have no other gods before me? Verse 6. How about this? But he gives us even more grace to stand against such evils. There's a second quotation from Proverbs. God gives us an abundance of grace to stand against the evil desires of this world. And then he goes on to say the third one. As the Scriptures say, God opposes the proud but favors the humble. Again, from Proverbs. He goes on to quote scripture three times. I love that. Because he's not saying, take my word for it. Or this is my best guess. He's asking the question, you say you believe in the scriptures. You say that you believe the word of God is entire, that it is whole, that it is complete, that it is inerrant, that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit at work within us, that it is active and alive, and that when we live it out, his word is still being written on our hearts today. But if you say that's true, then you understand that these three scriptures, which they all would have been familiar with, that you should have no other gods before me. And that God gives us an abundance of grace to face the trials of our lives. And that we are called to humble ourselves before God. Then you will know that those are true. So if you know that those are true, then you have to ask the question, well, why is he asking this? Because I believe that if they knew it was true, then it would be represented in the way that they live their life. But it's not enough to have a right concept of God. You've got to have a right relationship with God. I don't know how many scripture verses you memorized as a kid, how much awana you have running through your blood. What I do know is that those words will never reach their full potential and power until they become manifest in the way you live your life, not just what you can recite so that you can get a cute little cubby badge. They are cute, by the way. MJ, my six-year-old daughter, just lost her two front teeth fitting for Christmas. And whenever she's going her, over her scriptures for cubbies and awanas, the Lord said, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. My favorite thing right now is to ask her if she wants some twisted toast. Dad, what's twisted toast? I'm winning at life right now. All right, 
So here's, here's what I'm going to give us. I'm going to give us three practices with promises, okay? Three practices with promises, beginning in verse 7. We've identified issues and outcomes. Now we're going to look at practices and problems. So humble yourselves before God. Excuse me, not problems, pro- promises. So humble yourselves before God. That's the practice. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's the practice with a promise. Come close to God and God will come close to you. That's a practice with a promise. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord. That's the practice. And he will lift you up in honor. That is the promise. Let's look at this a little bit more closely together. Humble yourselves before God. This humility is literally to fall prostrate before God. It is to throw your hands up in the air in absolute and total surrender and to fall face first on the ground in absolute humility before God. To say, God, the things that you desire, I desire. The things that you long for, I long for. The things that you're calling me to, I will be obedient to. Then he gives some practices with promises. The first practice is resist the devil. And what's the promise? He will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There is no excuse for any one of us to to allow temptation to take over in our lives. Why? Because the practice is resisting the devil and the promise of God is he will flee from you. This is why this is so important what James says. Don't you understand what the scriptures say? Why? Because if you understand the scriptures then you know that the Bible says that God is the same yesterday as he is today as he is forever. Starting in Leviticus, actually even before that when he calls Abram, but then you go into Leviticus and throughout he says, I am the Lord your God. I will be among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. That is a promise that cannot be revoked. It cannot be resent, and he does not change. Look over and over and over again. When, 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 when people question who God is, he says, I am the God of your forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why is that important? Because it represents that the God who was is the God who is and forever will be. So we can take God at his word. And why is that important? Because his word says that if you resist the devil, the promise is he will flee from you. So why are you so engrossed in temptation? Could it be that you're not resisting? If you don't feel like the devil's fleeing from you, could it be that you're not even attempting to put up a fight? Look at Revelation chapter 12. The war has already been waged and won. Satan has dominion this side of heaven, but God has dominion over Satan and for all eternity. The problem is a problem of position. You don't realize what the enemy realizes, and that is Satan is under your feet. We need to start stomping. Stomp out the devil. Resist the devil. And the promise is he will flee from you. The problem is, in a spiritual sense, we're a bunch of pansies. I'm serious. I had to resist the devil this morning. There's a godsend angel woman in our church that provided pastries in the coffee bar, including chocolate-covered peanut hell. And I walked by and I saw those and I know who made them and I know what they taste like. I literally had to walk away. I had to resist. I had to say, get behind me, Satan. Potiphar's wife? I'm going to have no part in that because if I take a, a nibble of a peanut butter ball, that's it. That's it. 
I'm eight pounds of chocolate and peanut butter in. Resist the devil and he'll free from you. There's the practice with the promise. How about this one? Look at this one. Here you go. Then he says, come close to God and God will what? That, that, that wasn't rhetorical. Come close to God and the promise is that God will come close to you. If, 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 if there's a, a practice with a promise and you don't feel like God is close to you, but God never changes, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, it's a problem of proximity. Who's moved? Who's moved? Yeah. So quit pointing the finger at God. Where are you, God? I don't hear you anymore, God. I don't feel you anymore, God. I don't sense you anymore, God. I, I'm, not exp- I'm just not experiencing you anymore. And God is sitting right there. Papa God is sitting there in his great big barca lounger with his great big lap waiting for you to climb up in his lap and encounter him. The problem is we move in the middle of the, the, the woods in Oregon where I grew up. Everything looks the same. You lose sight of north, south, east, and west because we have really tall trees, hundreds and hundreds of year old oaks and pine trees and fir trees and, and everything kind of runs together you get these these sword ferns and these mossy rocks and these beautiful fallen trees and it's awesome the only way you have any hope is to see if there's a tributary or a river or a stream running through so you can follow that but you can get lost in the middle of the woods and call out where are you so many of us are lost in the middle of the woods of our lives and we're calling out to god where are you god but god didn't go wandering away we did We did. We're the ones who went wandering and then we get mad at God when we can't hear his voice. The practice is come close to God. The promise is God will come close to you. And then he's going to reference here, Matthew 5, 4, blessed are you who mourn for you will be comforted is what Jesus says. He says here, starting in verse, the second part of verse eight, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts for loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. What he's saying is the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, that God blesses those who mourn. It's not a mourning of a loved one who's been lost. It's a mourning of how broken we are. But the only way we'll be able to mourn the brokenness of who we are is if we start to rip out the sheetrock and the fiberglass and the electrical and everything until we identify the problem. We cannot begin to mitigate the problem until we identify the problem. Where's the leak in your life? Friend, where's the leak in your life? You're experiencing the symptoms of it. You're waging war. There's quarrels. There's fights. You're constantly jealous of everybody else. You're willing to say anything or do anything to get whatever you want, whatever you've got, because it's about, and, and, and it's creating all these problems. There's symptoms all around you that let you know that there's a problem, but the issue is you have not asked God to search your heart and reveal to you what the issue is. And if he has revealed it, you're running away instead of running to him. And what he's saying here is, listen, if you want to be comforted, if you want to be comforted, then you've got to confess. You've got to get honest with your brokenness, with how messed up you really are. I love Wednesday nights. I got to speak this last Wednesday night at youth group. I got to share a little bit of my story. Uh, One of our youth leaders asked the kids in his group, have any of you had a jacked up life more than Pastor Andrew? And none of the kids said, yeah, they all said, no, his life's messed up. He says, well, then we're already winning. But it comes at a cost, and that cost is being honest with yourself. I could never, I could have kept ripping out the sheetrock in my, in my, in my, in my, in my basement. 
and put new sheetrock up and it would be covered up for a couple days. But then what? And then you got a mold problem that's literally killing and destroying. If you want to get healthy, you've got to begin by investigating where the problem is. And then you've got to identify it. And he says here, when you identify it, mourn it. All right, guys, last practice of the promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Practice with a promise. So let me ask you a question. Worship team, if you're there, y'all can come out. Here is, I am the worship team, yeah. Well, buckle up then, because I'm just starting to preach. Here's the question I have for you. God says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Practice, promise. He says, come near to God and God will come near to you. Practice, promise. The word of God says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. This morning, if you're not experiencing the promises of God, if you're not experiencing the God who promises to stand with you in the fight, if you're not experiencing the promise of a God who says, I'm gonna come close to you, and if you're not experiencing the promise of a God who says, I'm gonna lift you up in honor, I assure you the problem isn't the promise. The problem is your practice. You're not practicing the presence of God. You're not taking God at his word. You're not living the life that he's called you to live. There's a pinhole leak inside of you that is beginning to wreak havoc on your life. And there's symptoms that are beginning to manifest. And all too often we identify the symptoms and say, oh, I'll get to that later. Have you ever been there? I got a grout problem around my sink right now. They put grout where they put a, should have put caulk. I knew it two years ago when I bought the house. I'll get to that later. The problem is it's starting to let water get behind the, where the sink meets the wall and it's creating problems. Oh, I'll get to that later. I got other things I want to do. We do that in our own lives. Well, we'll get to that later. We know there's a problem. We see the symptom, but I'll just get to it later. Or we'll puncture the hole and we'll see the damage and we get overwhelmed. Like my wife. Watch the carpet. That's what you said to me. Watch the carpet. She was a little overwhelmed in that moment. We get consumed with the wrong thing. It's not until we get honest and do the hard work of, of searching out the pinholes in our lives that we'll be able to address them and then mitigate the damage. And how do I know that we can mitigate the damage? Because James says, see, here's what I, here's what I get really upset about, Pastor Alex. People say, well, well, it's not your responsibility. Only God can change that. Well, then why did James say, if you choose to be friends with the world, you are choosing to be an enemy of God? It sounds to me like we have a responsibility in it, doesn't it? We 
can't blame God. Well, God just made me this way. Shut up. Yeah, you were created a sinner. You weren't created a sinner because of the fall of man. You were born into sin, which gives you sinful nature. But he didn't make you that way. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. God did not make me morbidly obese once upon a time. He didn't force feed me the eight pound chocolate and peanut butter bars. I did. What's, what's, what's the pinhole in your life? What's keeping you from the promises of God? Are you practicing resisting the devil? Are you practicing coming close to God? Are, are you practicing humbling yourself before the Lord? Hmm. These are some important things we really need to look at.